listeners, welcome back to a Kenyan American in the United States podcast. Uh, today I'm really excited about the topic I'm going to talk about because it's something somebody asked me uh, about, um, actually a few people in my life asked me about, and then um, even on like my Quora website uh, where I get like ask me a question, um, it ways they, they want to say that, we want to say that. People kind of sometimes want to know exactly what topic, research topic I did in my PhD. Um, and, you know, I can go on a tangent about this. So this is a great opportunity to um, indulge that and talk about it. Um, so I'm really excited. So um, hang on there and try to uh, and um, bear with me. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And of course, if any of this, you have any questions, um, just don't hesitate to let me know. I want to I wanna hear your feedback on this or if you want me to clarify on anything. Um, a lot of the people that have asked me questions about this usually are thinking about pursuing the next steps um, and they're trying to understand what kind of options might be there for like a PhD research uh, research focus um, and especially if you have a background in maybe like a pre-med program or even if it's internationally like you studied biology or uh, maybe chemistry or I don't know any of those topics or even you're trying to switch and figure out just like whatever stage you're at like maybe you're in high school some people just kind of are trying to figure out what direction they want to go and they kind of want to understand how exactly all of this works um, in the eventual stage of if you want to pursue to the level of a PhD. Um, yeah, this might be um, interesting to you. So hold on tight and we'll get right into it. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It is free. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, welcome back to my channel. I'm Grace Kisirkoi and today I will be addressing a question that um, a few people have asked me um, about what exactly my research study was, uh, what the topic was. Um, yeah, I would love to kind of address that. <laughs> and that's what you're seeing on the screen. Um, I'm going to give it a bit more of a description just so that it makes sense <laughs> as I continue talking about it. So um, what you can see in italics here is uh, Cryptococcus neoformans. So that's just like the uh, scientific name for a causative agent itself, fungus, um, and it causes um, meningitis, um, especially in people who have weakened immune systems. Um, and so this is what I was researching, essentially how this disease-causing organism um, is able to adapt when it's inside somebody's body, it's able to adapt metabolically, and that's a big part of its success, for it to find its energy um, and continue to um, multiply in somebody, somebody's body, essentially causing them disease. Um, 
and the reason why um so the reason why i'm talking about acetate transport um is because kind of it this one basically is my top is what i found so uh, acetate being a, an important part of the adaptation metabolic adaptation um but i will eventually get into that i'll probably not get into too much detail so i know don't bore people too much uh but to give you guys an indication of why this topic seemed important um is uh, i'll be talking about epidemiology so the spread of the disease and pathogenesis exactly what it causes um in a bit more detail so uh here i'm going to be showing you um a paper from um some scientists loan et al um and they did an analysis and and kind of reported on the disease burden of this uh pathogen so essentially, I'm just going to describe what you, you're seeing here. So on the y-axis where I'm pointing at, that's the number of um, the disease burden estimated cases per year in thousands. Um, and then anything that you're seeing in parentheses is HIV prevalence. And this is because HIV is one of the diseases that weakens people's immune systems. And this disease is considered opportunistic. So which means that it is more of a, an issue um, when people have a weakened immune system. And so it kind of the prevalence kind of seems to be um, aligning with the prevalence of HIV, uh, as you will see later when I show the rest of this chart. Um, and then the numbers, so whatever is in the dark column are the actual estimated cases of the disease, Cryptococcus neoformans, and the lighter column is the deaths resulting from the disease. So in sub-Saharan Africa alone, there's over 700,000 cases annually. Um, out of those, over 500,000 people die from the disease and 22.5 uh, million overall have HIV. Um, and then you'll see the prevalence is much less elsewhere. So like in Southeast Asia, um, it's about 4 million overall pre prevalence of um, HIV and uh, less than 100, around a little bit over 100,000 cases and much less than that in terms of death, which is still a lot of people dying from the disease, even though it's markedly, significantly much less than in Sub-Saharan Africa, that's still a lot of people suffering from the disease. And then the numbers decrease in Latin America, Europe, and Central Asia, North America and the Caribbean, East Asia, um, and even in the Middle Eastern countries, um, North Africa and the Middle Eastern countries is much less as well. Um, and so to give you an idea of exactly what this disease, how it affects people internally, like physiologically, I'll be talking about like the actual pathogenesis of it. Um, and so this is going to be another paper. Uh, I love this illustration from Future Microbiology. Um, and so basically, cryptococci, it's like the spores of dry cryptococci are pretty ubiquitous in the environment. Um, and so people typically just inhale them and then they go into your lungs. But in your lungs, if you have general healthy lungs, there are several outcomes that could happen. Um, so 
what I'm, I'm pointing at here, that's the cryptococcus cell that is inside your lung. So you can have macrophages, which are immune cells that could um, kind of engulf it. Um, and uh, they could either destroy it or several macrophages could surround the bigger ones um, and actually uh, contain them. Um, but in cases where people have much weakened, much more weakened immune system, we see that the cryptococcus can be can remain extracellular. So that means it's outside the cell, and a lot of them can even get much bigger, uh, or they get inside an immune cell. It's kind of more of like a Trojan horse, and just like happily survive. I don't know how happily, but they survive in that immune cell, and. From there, you can see that they will keep growing, and within that immune cell, they can even infect, in, go into the, the systemic circulation in the blood, and then they can cross um, the blood-brain barrier. So inside the blood, this, on the left, you can see the blood vessels uh, through three ways, either through like interstitial cells. Uh, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but they can actually cross into the brain. Um, and you, as you can see, the boxes here, um, I researched exactly, I read from different papers, people have already researched this, um, what the pH is in different parts of the body, uh, levels of glucose overall, how it varies, um, and that's what I found for brain, pH of about 7.3, and levels of glucose could range between 0.1 to 0.2. And then in just like blood circulation, pH is about 7.4 and levels of glucose could be about 0.1%. Um, but in the lungs, um, the environment is a lot less, has a lot less nutrients. And so what I'm talking about is equivalent to, uh, this is a yeast nitrogen broth. It's just a, a broth that we make in the lab that is indicative of very strict, it's like a very strict diet that doesn't have very much food. So glucose is usually preferred by microorganisms. It's a, it's like the preferred source. It's the easiest for them to break down energetically. Uh, I mean, debatably, um, in terms of what it costs them energy-wise, I'm talking about ATP. Um, and uh, yeah, probably uh, I could go into detail, but if you want, you can always let me know. I'm happy to go into a bit more detail to to explain why I'm t I say that. Um, and then, but beyond that, uh, once it cr crosses the blood-brain barrier, it's usually pretty a pretty bad outcome, and uh, the prognosis can be very. Uh, it could be fatal actually once it crosses into the brain uh, and the and. Um, and then it actually enters the central nervous system um, and that is really a, a really bad outcome. And that's what actually results in meningitis, fungal meningitis uh, caused by this disease. Uh, and so, yeah, that's why we thought that this was actually a really important topic uh, to research. And I felt like I felt connected to this topic because um, like I showed in the previous, uh, in the previous um, slide where I was talking about the prevalence, it's pretty common. Um, it's one of the most affected areas in Sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm from Kenya. So I was very touched to see that uh, an American institution um, could offer me a position to actually research this um, uh, in depth. And so I'll give a bit more of an idea of what I was asking, the questions I was asking uh, from a genetic standpoint. Um, 
and again we used a lot of people who had already done some research uh like preliminary research in mice um and they used so generally like ge the genetic transcript so like how many so uh, what i mean by this is when you when um you eat something um for example you eat something that has glucose uh sugar for example uh one of the sugars glucose is one of the sugars um in, before you when you're in starvation mode um genetically your body doesn't need to make enzymes to digest that but uh, as soon as you eat it then your body gets signals to start to make it to make enzymes um and uh you start to genetically create copies of the code that will help you make the enzyme and the enzyme will be a protein usually um essentially um and so in that same logic um kind of like during infection um there after eight hours on, of infection there was a very high uh transcription so basically very high numbers of these genes are associated with metabolism of acetate uh, especially the first three are the ones I kind of researched quite a bit on um, and the first two transport acetate um, and the reason that it's important to transport different carbon sources into a cell or out of a cell is uh, during that metabolic adaptation um, some cells cannot automatically just so for example if you think about it um you need your hand to transport food into your mouth and then at the cellular level cells need transporters to bring food into their bodies and so it's too expensive to for example if you don't need your car it's too expensive to just keep it on all the time so cells usually just keep off anything they don't need until they have a a trigger to to switch it on and use it um, and usually that is at the genetic level um, I mean many other it's a lot more complex but uh, when you see certain um, increases then that could be like a place to start and at this point we're just making kind of smart guesses like um, we research from what other people have seen I and mean, we see okay this might be indicative that whatever the body is increasing, uh, and again, this is in mice, might be essential during infection with this pathogen. So as soon as it's infected with a pathogen, after eight hours, so after eight hours inside the mouse, that is what the right um, column looks like. There's a high increase. So before, while it's growing just inside the lab, away outside of the body of the animal, um it's got very low numbers all of this so the first two these are these are genes the first two genes very low numbers and then inside the mouse they suddenly become much higher and the third one as well um and uh yeah this is essentially the equation that shows how acetate is utilized um so in in the formation of acetyl-CoA um, and we can go into a lot more detail. So um, using an, an, an energy source, ATP and acetyl-CoA can go into uh, cycles that generate energy for the cell. Um, and so with that, 
um, I will go into. So it's like one, it's actually, oh, another thing that we found is that acetate was actually the most abundant metabolite. Um, when you find tissue, for example, like brain tissue, lung tissue um, from infected animals, whatever we uh, whatever this researchers actually found was that they found a lot of acetate as a byproduct um, inside these tissues infected tissues um, and so with that I began to research exactly I, I wanted to research exactly what kind of um, this um, these uh, genes were and I looked into a lot of research and found that these genes were uh, the actual proteins belonged to certain families, a protein family. Um, and this is a protein family right here, PR1. Um, and with that, I researched a lot uh, in terms of where it's required for growing. Um, and it's actually required during um, when the less acetate you have and the less carbon cells you have, you actually require this gene. Um, so um, to give a bit more of a background on what how I researched this, um, we wanted to understand whether these genes were important for acetate to bring it into the cell, to, for acetate to be brought into the cell, the pathogen that causes um, meningitis. And the hypothesis is that it was important for it to scavenge for alternative ways of finding food. So if your preferred food isn't there, then you need to scavenge and find alternatives. Uh, and that's why potentially that after eight hours of infection, that um, those researchers were seeing that there was an increase uh, in the pathogen. And with this, I will just quickly summarize my findings uh, and how I went about that. So how we did that was you generate clones. So you, you generate clones that, uh, so these are control. The control has all the genes. It's the wild type that has all the genes. It's normal, it's functioning. Um, this is a control organism. And then you create knockouts. So this just means that you remove one gene at a time. Um, and to think about it is, for example, you go, you meet an alien, um, and the alien somehow is destroying, like it's causing apocalyptic damage to, um, I don't know, members of a certain galaxy. And then um, you're a scientist and you need to figure out how to take out this alien um, and protect yourself and your family. And so this is kind of what we, our thought pro process was. We don't really know exactly um, how to approach this, how to control this disease. Um, uh, I mean, like if, as effectively as we would like. Um, and so the way we do it is we compare. Um, so we think that these certain genes are important and we compare, you eliminate, you eliminate one gene genetically and see if the organism still functions. So for example, in the example of the alien that's causing apocaly apocalyptic damage, uh, you you think, wow, okay, this alien has a weird shape, uh, so I'm going to try and remove an appendage, this appendage that looks like a hand, and see if it can survive without it. So that one appendage might be one gene that seems important. And then you put that organism that is now probably, uh, you hope it's in a way has been 
um, it's attenuated, it's been weakened, then you put it in a situation where it would cause disease um, and compare with a fully functional and see if it's been reduced. Um, same for, same then you do want for the other gene, you remove that gene. Um, so scientists do that and then you put it in a situation where it could cause infection and see whether and compare it to the wild type. And then you can even remove duplicate ones and see if there's an interaction or uh, what happens. And I actually found a major um, impact, especially when both of them are reduced. Um, when one of them is reduced, there's uh, this, the first one, ADY2, um, there is a decline in ability to bring in acetate. So it, it, it affects the ability to metabolize and adapt to um, the presence of acetate. Um, and so it, can, it can't grow when acetate is the only source of carbon or source of nutrition um, in the lab environment. And then also in an infection environment, um, when both of these genes are removed, then the organism is as good as when you infect it, when um, anything is infected. So in this case, uh, we were doing mice studies. Um, the mice that were infected with that, the one that didn't have both genes, uh, they fared pretty much as well as the ones that were not infected at all. Uh, yeah, and that was a big highlight of my finding. And um, so I don't bore anyone too much. I'm going to stop there. And uh, if you have any questions, you want any more clarification, of course, I would love to discuss um, any aspect of that. Um, if you want me to clarify deeply on any particular aspect of that, just let me know. All right. Thank you.